Good morning. <laughs> Good. All right, he turned on. I imagine that most of you have seen this picture before, um, because I think I saw it as a young child, so it's clearly quite an old picture. Um, and um, I imagine you know what you're looking for. If you look at this picture, it's um, entitled A Picture of a Beautiful Young Woman and an Old Hag. I rather like to think of it as a beautiful young woman and a precious older lady would be more appropriate, especially considering we've been thinking about all ages of women. Can you all see them both, though? I'm assuming you can. Yeah, none of you need help. So the old, the beautiful young lady who I have completely lost right now, I can only see a precious old woman. Oh, there she is. This is her, this is her chin, her, this bit of your body, whatever that is, your chin thing, and her nose and her eyelash. And she's looking away from you with a little feather in her hair. Can you see her? I can see some puzzle. Well done. Help your mother. Sort her out. And then if you're looking at the precious older lady, this is her mouth, and this is actually her nostril, and um, and her eye is here, and that's her hair there. So in this picture, there is both a precious older lady and a beautiful young woman turning her face away from us. I can hear. Have you got it? You can see her. Good. I'll put it on at the end, and you can help each other. All righty. One of the things I love um, about this picture, other than how clever it is um, that it can have these two things, is that it actually is a good picture of us because inside of us there is beauty and inside of us there is ugliness. Inside of us there is the very best and inside of us there is the very worst. And that is what we're thinking about last week and this week. And we've been thinking about a king from the Bible, King Solomon, who was the son of King David. And we've been looking at his life at the best and the worst of him and thinking about this whole topic of wise for life. How can we be wise for life and what can we learn from King Solomon? Last week, we thought about the best of King Solomon. And um, we looked at a passage right from the Bible, right at the very beginning of King Solomon's reign. God says to him, it's an amazing, amazing thing. God says to him, what would you like? I will give you anything you want. And this is what Solomon says. He says, now, O Lord, my God, you have made me king instead of my father, David. And I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? And God is so impressed by his answer that actually the thing that he's asking for is um, a heart that listens is actually what it means. It's a listening heart, a heart that's open to God's guidance and wisdom, an understanding heart. And God is so impressed that this is his response that he says, yes, I'll give you that. You can have that heart, but I will also give you fame and wealth and a long life and all those other things that you didn't ask for. And this is Solomon's best. We don't know quite how long Solomon's best lasted, but if you read the accounts of his life quite quickly, we descend into the worst of Solomon too. And this morning we're going to think about the worst of Solomon. The beauty of the beginning of Solomon and his best is that he recognizes his smallness and he sees God's greatness. 
and then things change. Solomon is profoundly wise. He's so incredible. People just go, wow, when he makes decisions and judgments. And so word spreads and people flock from near and far just to sit and listen to him giving out judgments. Um, And they come and hear and sometimes they come and actually talk with him and they lavish him with gifts and riches as thank yous and give him enormous praise. He builds this incredible temple to God. It's, it's magnificent. I think it was one of the ancient wonders, was it, of the world? Possibly, maybe not. Um, but it was absolutely stunning temple. And, um, and, and it's good and beautiful. And so his building projects take off. It says in the Bible, he builds everything his heart desires. He builds a palace. He builds whole cities. And they're good. They're not shoddy labor. It's really good, um, magnificent places. And to be able to build these amazing things, he needs manpower, labor. And so initially, he takes slave labor from the countries around him. But they need more manpower because he's building more things. And so he actually has um, forced labor parties from among his own people, from the people of Israel. He grows a mighty army, an army to protect this nation. And to be a good army, he builds amazing loads and loads of chariots, loads and loads of ships as well. And to pull these chariots, he imports the very best horses and buys the very best horses from Egypt because they must have been the best. And then he builds whole towns to house these armies in. He grows enormous wealth. It's said in Jerusalem at that time that silver had the same value and was around as much as stone. It was such a wealthy place that pretty much most of the things that Solomon used were made of gold. His enormous throne was made of gold. He ate with gold utensils. He drank from a gold cup. He was richer and richer. And much of his wealth came from the gifts that people lavished on him, but also from heavy taxes that he imposed upon his own people. He marries many, many women some of them from Israel and some of them from surrounding nations. It's said that he had 700 wives of royal birth and that wasn't quite enough. So he has 300 concubines as well on the side. I was telling my husband about this and he says, that is a lot of text messages telling you you're late for tea. (laughs) I have never sent him a text message telling him he's late for tea, but that is an awful lot of wives. And then he wants to please his wives, of course, good man. And so he decides, though, this is not good, to build temples to their gods. He decides, well, if this will please them, I'll build temples to their gods. And then time goes by, and he goes to those temples with him, and he starts to worship their gods alongside his god. Slowly, over time, this has happened He cannot see the greatness of God because he in himself is so great. He sees himself as so great. This is the worst of Solomon. Before um, there were any kings in the nation of Israel, when Israel first came out of Egypt, they didn't really know what to do. They were a new nation. They didn't know how to lead themselves or anything like that. They hadn't been a nation before. And so God gives them over a period of time lots of instruction. This is how to be a nation. And it's all written down in these books of law and instruction. When you're a nation, do this. When you're a nation, do that. And one of these sections says, at some point, you're bound to get a king. And so this is what I want the king to do. 
It says, for the king, this is the instruction for the king. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set up a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure you appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Tick. Yeah, they do that. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Yeah, that's right. Do not place a foreigner over you or one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you must not go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Not quite sure how often he read that. The best of Solomon is his humility at the beginning when he sees himself as small and God as great and his wisdom and his wise leadership especially initially over the people and the worst of Solomon his pride and his arrogance that grew he starts so well and then it seems to be that his pride and arrogance grow and just envelop his humility and just um, corrupt the leadership that has such wisdom to it. And he ends his life knowing that people are rebelling within his own nation, that people are rebelling in other nations. And he ends his life knowing, being told that God is angry with him, that God is angry that he has been led astray. And he's, he's told that actually when he dies, his son, who he would hope to give this huge nation to, Actually, the kingdom will be divided and the son is only going to receive a really small portion of and just to honor King David, his father. He's going to just have this little bit of land that he will um, rule over. So it ends very sadly with the worst of Solomon. What about us? What about our best and our worst? Can we live lives that are wise for life? If we compare ourselves to Solomon, we probably might feel pretty good about ourselves. I don't imagine many of us would be tempted, maybe, by horses from Egypt or having lots of slaves or many wives. I don't know. Maybe we look at um, people that we know or people that we hear of who live really good lives and then we hear that something comes along and corrupts them. And we think, I wouldn't be tempted like that over that. But maybe that's just because the thing that's tempting them isn't something that would tempt us. I think generally in life, our very worst actually sits very snugly alongside our very best. I think often it's the things that make us who we are and make us our very best that contain the temptation to be our very worst. King Solomon himself had this incredible wise leadership, but there was this temptation lurking beside him to be arrogant, to be proud. I've got a list. Have a little look at this. It's a list of bests sitting next to a list of worsts. I wonder if you look at this, whether you can see your bests there on the left-hand side of both columns. I wonder whether you can find your best. I wonder whether the word next to it is possibly your worst. It's absolutely not a perfect list. So it may be your worst is somewhere not anywhere near your best. I don't know. 
But is there something up there that you go, yeah, actually, that is my best. And yeah, that is probably my worst. Many of those worst things are to do with pride, but they're absolutely not all to do with that. But they're certainly all to do with self-focus, putting ourselves first. So how do we live our best? I think one of the things that we do is that we see what our worst is, that we acknowledge that this is my worst and we own it. About 14 years ago, God very clearly, and I've shared it before, but God very clearly showed me what my worst is, that it is pride, glory-seeking, praise of other people, and things like that. He showed me in numerous ways. It was very obvious. And it was a time in my life when I was really choosing. I want to wholeheartedly live for God. He was calling me to, to move close to him. So I knew I had to deal with that. And there were lots of things um, that um, I chose to do. I, I, I prayed and talked to God about what to do and had lots of things. If a proud thought came to my mind, I would picture Jesus and I would lay it down in front of him, hope, trying to do that as soon as the thought came to my mind. If it involved somebody else, um, then I would pray for that person and pray good things um, for that person instead. I read some books that were, were good. I wrote myself a prayer of renouncement. You can see I've used it a bit. Um, And I used to pray this, Lord, I renounce my desire for human praise, for the approval of my peers, the need for public recognition. I deliberately, Lord, help me in your strength only. Put these aside today, content to hear you whisper, well done, my faithful servant. Amen. I would pray this prayer. And God did a deep work in me then. And he continues to do this deep work in me. And every now and again, I just need to be aware of it. But I hadn't actually thought about pride for a little while. I hadn't prayed this prayer for ages and ages. And um, then about two months ago, I realized that I was unsettled about something. There was something um, that... Yeah, that I didn't have any peace about. And it was to do with one of my children and an activity that they're involved in. I found myself um, passionately wanting to further them in this activity. I found myself being quite protective of them. There were moments that I was angry. Um, I just found myself being competitive. It was pretty much all going on inside. You wouldn't have necessarily seen it unless I was at home in my own house. And I turned to my husband and was just, what is wrong? Something, I am so unsettled about this. And he agreed, yeah, my attitude was pretty off and not right. And so I thought, I need to actually go away and do something about this. And so I spent a few time, a bit of time with God um, at different moments. And when I do that, I'm, I'm a question asker. God, show me what is going on inside of me. God, why am I so unsettled? Um, some amazing questions that I love asking at the moment are, God, show me the lie that I am believing. Show me a truth that you want to replace that with, because I am so unsettled and, and not at peace about myself. And slowly, because I can be dense, sometimes it's fast and sometimes it's slow, but slowly Slowly, he said, you're glory-seeking for this child. This is your pride. This temptation and sin has reared its ugly head again in your life, and you've fallen for it. And I had. I absolutely had. I hadn't recognized it for what it was at all. And so the work begins again. I found this old bit of paper that was in my Bible, but I hadn't flicked through. And I, whenever I go anywhere near this situation, I get this out and I pray it, but I put my child 
sort of and that situation into it as well and I have to be aware of it again and God slowly does that work in this temptation that lurks that I can fall for sometimes and I know that God is going to do that work in me all the days of my life because he loves me he loves the best in me he wants me to be the very best that I can and so this temptation that lurks because it is so close will sit alongside of that so I need to be aware of it I need to be aware of my um, very worst so that I can live my best when we look Back at the instructions that were given for what a king should be like, so not many horses, not many wives, um, and not too much wealth. That passage actually goes on and says some more, and it actually is telling the kings, it's not just don't do this. Actually, I've got some really good things that I want you to do to help you to be your best. And it says this, I've put it in a slightly oldie-woldie language, because I think actually this is a really good explanation of it. It's from the amplified version of the Bible. It says, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn fear and worship the Lord his God, with awe-filled reverence and profound respect. By carefully obeying, keeping foremost in his thoughts and actively doing all the words of this law and these statutes, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen by a false sense of self-importance and self-reliance. And he will not turn aside, deviate from the commandment to do, from the commandment, to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue to reign for a long time in this kingdom of Israel. The king is to remember what matters every single day. He is to remember the greatness of God every single day. He is to remember how small he is. He is to worship every single day. Because this is how to stay at his best. And this is the best for him and the best for his children and all around him too. The very first story that you find in the Bible, if you had a Bible and flicked through it and found the very first story that um, has a person or people and the best of them and their worst of them, you'd only have to flick about one or two pages. It's in the story of Adam and Eve. Now, where's Cheryl? Cheryl, come up here and join me for a minute. Thank you. It's in the story of Adam and Eve. Now, I've asked Cheryl up because Cheryl has an amazing um, way. I love it. When she reads the Bible, she loves not just to read it, but she goes deep, deep into it. And so she likes to get... So when they um, write the words in English, obviously the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek or Hebrew. Um, And so you can go... So there's lots of different translations of this, and they're all a bit different. And Cheryl loves to go to all these different translations and compare them and work out what the meaning of words is and things like that. So in a moment, she's going to share something for us. But Adam and Eve, first of all. So the very first story of... Next, just for a second. The very first story um, 
of the worst of someone and the best of someone, Adam and Eve, they are in this perfect, beautiful place, maybe slightly fewer animals than our picture. I'm not sure. There's a lot of them there. Um, But they're, they're in this perfect, beautiful place. They have everything that they need. They get to walk with God in the cool of the day every day. And they're just not allowed to do one thing. They're just not allowed to eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Other than that, go for it. Um, And yet, of course, along comes the lurking temptation in the form of a snake and says to them, you're not allowed to eat the fruit of the trees. No, 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 we can. We can eat any of them, but just not that one. Just not the knowledge of good or evil. You'll die if you'll do that. You won't die if you eat that. In actual fact, you'll have far greater understanding. God just doesn't want you to eat that because you'll be more understanding. You'll be more like him. And this not very subtle sin that works speaks to them. And they take the fruit and they eat it. God knows that they've eaten it. And he comes along and he says to them, what have you done? And Cheryl, what what do they respond to that? Well, most translations say at that point, sorry, the serpent deceived me and I ate. But the translation that I was looking up said, the serpent hath caused me to forget and I do eat. So they were deceived into forgetting. They forgot about God's goodness and they ate the fruit. And it resulted in separation and death. So the act of forgetting plus the act of eating equals separation. Thank you. Cheryl's going to come back up in one moment. Don't go far. Thank you. The act of eating and the act of forgetting resulted in separation. It resulted in death. It resulted in the worst. King Solomon forgot that he was small and God is great. Eve forgot who God is and that what God says is best. She forgot who he'd made her to be and she ate. So for us us to live at our best, we need to recognize what our worst is and be aware of that. And we mustn't forget. It's easy when we're not daily remembering what matters to slip into our worst. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe I would encourage you to be remembering the things that you value most, to be remembering the person that you want to be so that you can be aware of temptations that come. For those of us here who are followers of Jesus, do you daily remember who he is and how great he is? making sure that you do not forget that, so that when temptations come along, you can see them for what they are. And you can ask God to give you his strength, his Holy Spirit, so you can stand and say, no, I am not going to give in to the worst of me. I will stand and be the best of me. And when we fall, because we will fall again and again and again, knowing that we can get back up and come to Jesus, come to God and say, I'm sorry, I've fallen again. I've given into the temptation to be the worst of me again. Please, can I have a fresh start? Please, can I start again? And being able to do that, being able to start again. Okay, Cheryl, you didn't have much of a rest. <laughs> come back. We're about to have communion in a moment. 
We're going to take a moment where we remember Jesus's death and we take bread and we eat it and we take wine or juice, in this case, a cup of that, and we share those together and we remember Jesus's death. We remember his body broken for us. We remember his blood shed for us, knowing that it's because of that that we can have a clean start from our worst that we can bring our brokenness and have it restored and healed. Now, Cheryl, in this whole thinking of the act of eating that, you've learned more about you've learned more about communion as yes. well. Can you share that yeah, with us? Yeah, yeah. Um, Jesus came to restore us to God. So he took the act of eating and transformed it. I just found this fascinating. Um, in First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 25, Jesus says to remember in communion. It says, Jesus took the bread and spoke a prayer of thanksgiving. He broke the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. When supper was over, he did the same with the cup. And he said, this cup is the new promise made with my blood. Every time you drink from it, do it to remember me. So as the act of forgetting plus the act of eating led to separation, so now the act of remembering Jesus and his goodness plus the act of eating leads to restoration. The act of remembering plus the act of eating in communion leads to life and relationship with God. He transformed eating from separation to restoration. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome to sit down. Thank you. Isn't that incredible that God even cares about restoring us in every single way? And that act of forgetting linked to eating has been completely restored by the act of remembering and eating Jesus' death. How are you going to daily remember God's greatness? How are you going to do that? If you have no idea at all, please come and talk to me afterwards. I would love to have that conversation with you. But can I encourage us as a community, for those of us here that are followers of Jesus, can I encourage you, and I'm sure many of you do this anyway, to choose a meal every single day And to, before you eat that meal, to remember not just to thank God for the food, but to remember the greatness of God. To remember that he chooses to restore us. To remember all the good things he gives us. And to thank him for the food as well. Choose one meal, whether that's a meal you're going to eat on your own or with other people, to actually go, at this moment of eating... I am going to remember you, God, and your goodness. We're going to do that together now in the act of communion. We're going to have this amazing moment of restoration of ourselves. Because we're going to come up, when the, when the band um, play in a moment and I get down, take that time. And if you are somebody that says, yes, I want to choose to remember a no restoration, then go to one of the tables. There's four of them around the room and take a little cup and take a bit of bread and come back to your seat. And in your seat, say, God, help me to choose to remember you through my days. 
help to restore me. I'm sorry if something comes to mind, you go, actually, I have had a bit of my worst. Bring that and talk to God about that and say, I'm sorry that this worst has got the better of me. Please restore me and give me a clean start and let me start again. And we can know as we remember his greatness, we can know a fresh start and restoration. So I'm going to talk to God now. I'm going to pray and you're welcome to join with me or to listen in and then we'll have communion. God, we thank you that you love us and you love the best in us. We thank you that you give us strength and your Holy Spirit in us to live in the best. We thank you, Jesus, for dying for us that you can take the very worst in us Remove the worst from us. And you can restore our brokenness. You can restore us again. We thank you.